Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your place to get best insights in all things to do with presentations, presentations creation, slide design, Q&A, speaker coaching, and business communication in general. So my name is Michael Rickwood, and every podcast we actually have uh, an expert who come and share their insights uh, with us for each episode. And today I have an absolute, the absolute pleasure of, of welcoming uh, a very special guest, the legendary Jerry Weissman. So welcome, Jerry. Uh, Jerry is uh, a presentations consultant uh, with a career spanning uh, 40 years. Uh, he's actually originally- 30, from 30, 30. 30 years, okay. Thanks for granting me that. Um, originally from a uh, graduate of Stanford University, he works in television uh, and then was uh, uh, persuaded by a friend to enter in, into the domain of presentations uh, consulting. Uh, he's worked uh, with many US companies uh, and beyond, uh, particularly in the tech sector, uh, some great and uh, very influential names uh, from as far as Netflix to, to Microsoft, uh, Cisco Systems, Google, and many, many, many others. And he's actually helped these people to increase their market share and, 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 and others to get investments. Um, Jerry actually founded his own company uh, in the early 90s, if I'm correct, uh, which he rebranded in 2017 called Suasive. And of course, he's an author of five fabulous books, three of which we will be discussing today. Uh, those books are Presenting to Win, Power Presenter, and In the Line of Fire, uh, a book about how to answer tough questions. So. Uh, Jerry has influenced many captains of our industry within the presentation sector, uh, notably Gar Reynolds, who the author of Presentations Then, who once said that Jerry is the uh, Jedi Master of Presentations, so that's pretty cool uh, right there. Uh, but also others such as uh, Guy Kawasaki and, and Nati Duarte and many, many others. And I would just say finally that uh, Jerry certainly, uh, for my career, has done, done me lots of service with his tools. Um, over the years uh, since I've been reading Jerry's work, which, which goes back even before I, I, I joined Ideas on Stage, uh, and in particular the, the, the mental methods. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to finding out or to listening more uh, from, from, from Jerry himself. So thanks, Jerry, for joining us from your home in, in Silicon Valley. My pleasure. Uh, and that's actually, uh, I, so that introduction was, was worked on using one of your techniques, which of course is verbalization. So there you go, I learned that from you. Um, now, today's podcast is really, uh, just to frame it before we start, it's really, uh, as we were discussing before, the unification of the presenter's skills. And really, because you have a, such an entire methodology, I've got a series of questions here, really, uh, which will go through the methodology in, in, in a loose structure, starting with, um, starting with story, uh, a little bit on slides, then speaking, and then Q&A. So that's really how it will We'll do that. So good. Uh, let's just let me just start you with it, ask you with this question. Uh, just to, you know, coming back to the problem that 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 persistent problem, which is, you know, in the thirty years of developing these tools for for business presenters, for you, how, how do the problems still persist today in two thousand and twenty one? What what are people still struggling with? Well, I have to go back to the founding of my company back in nineteen ninety when I had the privilege of having lunch with one of the premier venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, Don Valentine, the man who invested in Apple, Google, Cisco systems and the like. And uh, we had lunch. We spoke about one of the companies he was going to be taking public. And during that lunch, he said something to me that is true that day as it is today. And it is, Jerry, the problem is that no one knows how to tell a story. But the bigger problem in, is no one knows that they don't know how to tell a story. <laughs> so all the lessons we've learned back to Socrates and Aristotle have gone out the window. And the reason is we are all living on the slide decks and people tend to shuffle slide decks in business, the lingua franca of business is the slideshow. Send me your deck. Well, decks allow presenters to shuffle the cards like a Las Vegas card dealer. And when the shuffle of the slides go because 
one person would say, I think this should go first, or that should go second, or this should go up there. Once that shuffle occurs, the story is lost. And once the story is lost, the audience is lost. Pervasive, universal problem. Yes, very true. Yes, the, 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 the whole set, send me your slides. Um, so yeah, sending me your slides in advance, that's still very much happening. And uh, the fact that there is no, yeah, there's, there's no, I mean, storytelling is sequencing, right? Sequencing ideas into a certain flow, a certain exactly. structure. And or without that. As they say in Hollywood, it's called the story arc. Right. Or I know that you're in Paris, yep. and French people have what's called rouge fil, pardon my, my <laughs> poor French pronunciation, but it means the red thread. Right. And yes. the red thread refers to continuity. And it, it can refer to anything in business, a business plan, but it also applies to rhetoric. And if there is no red thread, if the audience cannot follow, you lose the audience. That's correct. Yes, indeed. Yes, the fil rouge. Yes, I, 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 people use this a lot um, when they talk about anything, <laughs> just getting to the end of the idea. So, sure, that's, that's, that's very true. The red line. Yeah, great. All right. So, Let's, let's have another question. So let's talk about your methodology. As an overview, what are the components, components of your methodology and how do they start together to help the presenter? The important factor is that the components you described and which are the three components covered in my major books, but there are actually four components, the narrative, the slides that illustrate the narrative, the delivery skills and the Q&A skills, they have to work together. You cannot unbundle these skills. They all have to have a unified integrity as a presenter moves forward in the development of the story. Because of my background in television, it's right there on our website. I worked at CBS. The methodology I developed was right out of the broadcast center on 57th Street in Manhattan. One of my jobs was to provide tough questions for the great Mike Wallace. So with that as, a, as an imprimatur on my site, people say, oh, can you call, can we call you and have you help us and give us some tips and tricks about how to handle tough questions? That's what our PR people do. Well, I'm sorry, I can't help you with your questions if I don't understand your story. If your story is not baked, if your story is not integral, if your story is not solidly clear as to the message you want to communicate and why it's important to the audience, I can't help you with the questions. So it's it all the skills going back to the story fuel the the way people answer questions. Also, I'm sure you're aware of being in the trade, Michael, that the number one fear people have in the world is public speaking and people hate to stand up in front of a, of a room and uh, the famous story is told by jerry uh, seinfeld the american comic who said people yeah. fear in a poll people fear speaking before a group more than death and seinfeld's punchline is so that means people would rather be in the grave than giving this eulogy <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah, that's true. Because when people call and say, can you help me as a coach to control my nerves, to stop my hands from trembling, for my mouth to stop pasting? Yeah. The first step is to get your mind clear on what you say. If the presenter's mind is not clear, all the tips and tricks about voice and body language and gestures are just flapping arms and flapping gums. The presenter has to have a clear idea of what they're going to say. Lighten the load before you step up to the front of the room. And that's what we do at Swayson. We start with the story. I cannot start in the middle. I cannot start by telling people what to do with their hands and arms or give them tips and tricks for their Q&A session without having a solid well-told rouge fil story. Mm. Yes, and that's very true. I, I'm rereading Presenting to Win right now, and, and you say in the book that 
So you would spend a lot of time with your clients working on that story in that initial phase. And it's true, certainly in our experience, um, you know, when, when, when I'm working with clients, you know, it's really sitting down, first of all, asking what is it the audience need from them and, and, then, and then getting getting those ideas germinated and, and, and structuring. And this can, this can take a long, long time, but, it, but it's really, really got to be done before we move on to anything else. And, and even several right. sessions. I know that you're fluent in French, so pardon my expression. <laughs> but the French do have a wonderful expression, vaut la peine. It's worth the effort. Yes. It's worth the effort to put the time in the development of the story and the clarification of the ideas in the presenter's mind so that the presenter can then think about body language, voice, answering questions, and even designing slides. Yes, it is vaut la peine indeed, absolutely. Great. Well, good. Let's 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 continue with, with story. I've got another question for you on, on that. So let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the tools that you write about um, in with story development. So um, and particularly with audience need in presenting to win, both in power presenting to win and power presenter, you, you extensively talk about Wi-Fi. Uh, and, and it's nothing to do with Wi-Fi, right? Wi-Fi. So just want to explain to us what Wi-Fi is, please. Yes. Wi-Fi is an acronym. But that's spelled W-I-I-F-Y, and it's based on the more familiar one, W-I-I-F-M, which is what's in it for me. And when the presenter is thinking, what's in it for you, the why of Wiffy, the presenter then focuses on the audience and then designs the story to the audience. This simple concept gives lie to the classic, classic business concept of the corporate deck. There can be no corporate deck because you cannot give, a company cannot give the same presentation to one customer as to another because two different customers have two different needs. Now, does this mean that a presenter has to reinvent the wheel and throw everything out and restart from the beginning? No, but from the very start, from the very moment the process begins, the presenter needs to understand who the audience is and what they need in order to deliver the presentation or to be persuaded by the uh, uh, presenter. Absolutely, yeah. Yes, I am. Um, it, it, it sometimes, um, it's, it, uh, I have used that very same expression in, in some cases and, and, and actually just to say what's in it for you or what's in it for them, I uh, can put a perspective sometimes, uh, even if people are thinking about the audience's needs, sometimes just by wording it like that can sort of make people think slightly different and say, actually, yes, what is it in it, what is in it for them? Right. You know, that's why often many pitches and, and start with the problem, you know, what's, what's, what's the inconvenience, what's the pain points? You know, we talk about that uh, when, 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 we, um, when I'm coaching startups. Uh, I mean, I'm doing a lot of work at the moment with HEC um, on this sort of, with people with um, technological ideas, but, but the thing is, is that what is the pain point? What, what what's in it for the customer, basically, or what's well, in let it? Let me give you a very, a very yeah. simple, practical application. Uh, here in Silicon Valley, we have two types of technology. We have uh, electronic technology, but we also have life sciences technology. And I work with a lot of companies yeah. that are developing drugs and diagnostics and devices and the like, and uh, I flunked organic chemistry at college, <laughs> but you know, I helped them to communicate with their audience. And frequently, because the life scientists are scientists, they want all the data. And they have all these tests and these graphs and these charts. And my instruction to them as a coach is, you can show this chart to your investor audience, but you have to tell them why this chart is important to them as an investor. Right. Which transforms the narrative of that chart. Yes, it's like that Netflix example that you use in, the, in Presenting to Win, where the original slide was very much geared towards the end customers, where actually you changed it to interest the investor, or basically yes, shifting the interest of the market. Yeah. You're talking about the Netflix IPO roadshow, and I had the privilege of working yeah. with Reed Hastings. Uh, it was actually the second time I worked with Reed. He'd taken another company public in the late 90s called Pure Atria Software. And when he came to Netflix, he was 
he called again and said, let's polish the presentation. And he remembered much of what I told him, except that the one slide that described Netflix's original business yeah. was targeted to subscribers. Right. So we simply converted it to target to investors. Yeah, slight adjustment, but but yeah, changes everything. Okay, good. Let's have another question. So uh, in presenting to win, you cover a lot on brainstorming. You talk about clustering and the parallels with the Roman room method. So yeah, we, we won't, won't go into too much detail perhaps on this one, but can you just expand on, on that <laughs> a bit? <Are> you, <laughs> you threw a lot of, a lot of tools into that pie. Uh, you're actually describing three very important steps. The first is to set the context of the presentation, is to understand who the audience is, which is goes back to the WIFI, and also, what the point of the presentation, what is the goal of the presentation? Because all too many presentations do not have an apparent goal. Think about the time you've sat in the audience and you've said to yourself, what's the point of this? Or as the teenagers put it, and your point is, I know you have a teenage son, isn't that true, Michael? Did you say? Actually, I do. I, I, no, actually, I, I have one who's 10 and one who's 20, so they're, they're either side of the teens. <laughs> Well, I'm sure they've said that to you, Dad. And your point is? Yes, of course. <laughs> well, let's be, imagine that from an audience to a presenter. What's your point? And your point is? So we yeah. first set the context. Then the next thing we do is brainstorming. And the reason it's important to do brainstorming is because human minds think in random fashion. And when we approach a subject, we approach it with multiple ideas and each idea has a bias, a precondition, a preconception, tangential thoughts or orthogonal thoughts. And, and all of these thoughts come bubbling up in the brain. A great influence in my career is Daniel Kahneman's brilliant book, and you ought to get him for your podcast, sure. called yeah. Thinking Fast and Slow, in yeah. which he describes this process of the brain. So the key is to let all of that happen in the preparation and not the pre presentation. Get the brainstorm out onto an external surface. Mm. Once it's all out and you have all those random thoughts, then you can pick and choose what you want to tell the audience and pick and choose them and distill them into small groups of ideas with a maximum of six, ideally three or four ideas. You call them Roman columns. The reason I call them Roman columns in the book goes back to the days of the Roman Empire when the great orators used to speak for hours on end without any notes. They used the columns of the forum as memory prompts. By the way, that's an entirely separate business. There's an entire cottage industry called the Roman Room Method, yes. in which people learn to memorize decks of cards. I'm not asking presenters to memorize decks of cards. I'm asking them to distill their ideas. And once a presenter has a distillation of four, five, or six major themes, then we apply le rouge fil. Right. Yes, That's exactly. Process in a nutshell. Yes, <laughs> actually, just about the Roman columns. I mean, for, for me, that that's a nice image um, because the Roman column for me represents a cluster of ideas, right? And and what's what's the big? This is coming back to the problem about the fact that people are thinking in presentations in the terms of slides, but they, they really should be in the terms of Roman columns. If, 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 for example, you have three or four columns that you need to, to get through, or five throughout the presentation, there may be there may be a hundred slides illustrating all of that. It, Bingo. It's, you see what I mean? So it's it's it's, and this is the this is the the, the challenge really. You know, I, I used to build huge presentations for a French tech company called Quant. They're, they're a privacy-based search engine. Um, they're actually used now by the French government. And so I, I worked with the founder for for four years on, on this, and I would produce slide decks which sometimes were 120 uh, slides long, but we we never had any any more than than three Roman columns. It was really just, you know, some, you need so much animation and so much because it was very contextual and visual in order to communicate it. But ultimately, the, the Roman columns were actually very few. And that should be the way. The problem with bad, a lot of bad presentations, they, 
uh, corporate presentations that they might have 24 Roman columns in there. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, if a presenter walks up to the front of the room with 24 Roman columns in mind, the nervous level, the nervousness level will escalate right. to panic. Well, this is where you get another French word, which is gavage, which, mean, which means to stuff, stuffing the audience. And that's what, what's basically <laughs> what was happening, you know. Uh, gavage is like, like, like stuffing geese to make foie gras, which is, you know, that, that's the time of year, now. it's Christmas. Okay. So, all right. Uh -huh. Vage leads to gout. <laughs> right, yes, it, it certainly does. All right, let's let's okay, let's shift it uh, questions a little bit towards the slides. And then there's a quote here I want to to give back to you that I've been using for years. And I, I have a slide with your picture on it with this quote, which I've been showing to people for years. Which is, um, uh, if you make it hard on the audience, they're going to make it harder on you. Uh, are you specifically talking about bad slides in this in this quote? Talk about everything. <laughs> okay. If the story is too difficult to comprehend, imagine if this Zoom call were to be a podcast and you didn't see my eyes or your eyes or your handsome beard or your handsome scarf <laughs> uh, and you were to... <laughs> very French. It's a fil rouge, exactly, yeah. <laughs> right. Imagine if, 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 all we had to react to was the story, and it was difficult to follow the story. Well, wait a minute. What, what does that have to do with? How did he get there from here? What, what does that have to do with what he just said? That makes it hard for the audience because they stopped listening and tried to recalibrate what the presenter has said, and they stopped listening. Game over. Right. Is it, so the eyes glaze over. You have that. that is it Migo? Thing that you talk about presenting to win. You have to credit that to the old Time magazine. I learned that from the editors of Time magazine. They they coined that uh, phrase, M-E-G-O, my eyes glaze over. Right. Or as one of my clients put it, me go away. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I can tell you there's a lot of that happening still. Uh, I, I, um, I won't say who gave the presentation, but I saw a presentation happen at the World Bank um, about a couple of years ago, uh, and uh, crikey, there was a lot of glazed eyes happening uh, during that particular presentation. So, all right, um, next question. I, I read in an interview once that you said it's the presenter at fault with poor slides and not the software. Is it a case of a bad workman blames his tools? Yes, this is the, uh, this is where I draw a line between myself and that famous um, graphic artist, what is his name? Like, I'm drawing a blank on it now, the man who puts out the, the map of Napoleon's attack on Russia and retreat from Russia. Uh, Hans Rosling, the right. TED talk? Yes. Hans Rosling, yes. Right, uh, in which he says PowerPoint causes the problem. PowerPoint is not the problem. It's the person who designs the PowerPoint. It's the pen. It's not the pen. It's the penmanship. If the presenter uses the PowerPoint for multi-purposes, what we at Suasive call it is a twofer. Here's my slide deck that I will display to you, and here's the, the hard copy. So now the hard copy is meant to be a standalone. Oh, well, Michael, you can't make it. Uh, before you come, would you please send me the hard copy? Now, there's no Michael to tell me what this means. So this hard copy has to be very detailed. But if I put that up on the screen, all that detail, the audience is busy making it hard for the audience, trying to understand what the slide says because there are so many words on there or so many bar charts or so many life sciences clinical trials game over so that's not the fault of powerpoint powerpoint will allow you to put one word on a slide powerpoint will allow you to put one image on a slide an icon and you the presenter do it as a headline but just, just to bounce off, I mean, just bounce off of that, it, it, it's the next question, but I think we can mix it in here. Um, I mean, slides have, 
you know, when you started in this game in the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, slides still have come a long way. Because when I think about the, the first, you know, when we first saw PowerPoint, I mean, you know, I was, I was still a child, you know, um, in 1986 or whenever it came out, I was 12 years, 12 years old. But, I mean, you, had, you still had basically clicked out title, clicked out subtitle, clicked out sub, you know what I mean? It was, that's the first thing you saw when you opened it. So people just did what they were told, right? I mean, that, that, that's, you know, the, the early days, that's what it was. But of course, now it's moved along, it's moved much further along. It's people, but I mean, particularly now, I think that it, that, that, that it's very, very true that people are, are still not using it right. Uh, because all the tools now are much more widely available compared to when it was uh, when, it, when it started back in the 80s, right? Well, back in the 80s, Many of the people I work with here in Silicon Valley were using acetates. <laughs> Transparencies with the overhead projector, the OH, the classic OHP, the dinosaur of presentations. Yeah. And then many uh, Harvard graphics came up with some software. But also I work with a very unique product called Video Show, a dedicated product that was created to create presentations that not only had the slides, but it also had the display mechanism, a big elephantine box that one attached to a TV set. But, and even though the software for there was, as you say, title, subtitle, sub bullets and all that, I could override it. I could skip the subtitle. I could, instead of putting eight bullets, I could put four. I mean, it's the choice of the presenter, but if the presenter is focused on what the audience needs and making it easy for the audience, the presenter simply takes the essence of the slide and puts it on the title, or it just as considers it a headline. I'm looking at today's Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Stocks decline on fresh pandemic worries. Mm -hmm. I'll bet you, not even as a newsman can sit there and talk for, for three minutes on that, on what you know. For sure. Very simple, that's all you need. Stocks decline on fresh pandemic worries. Six words. Yeah. You don't need sentences beyond that. Sure, we could read the entire story, but we don't need the entire story. The story comes from the presenter. That's great. Yes, yes. So yeah, find, finding the titles from headlines. Yeah, that, that that's, that's a nice idea. Um, and it's true that you you have you have a simple headline. You, you throw it up there on a slide, and then you everyone has an opinion on it, and you can actually present that and, and speak for three minutes. Great. All right. Let, let's um let's move it on to to delivery, uh, and and then and then we'll finish on Q and A. So. Um, one thing that struck me from reading Power Presenter, this is really is one of my favorite books, um, is the emphasis on building from the inside out. C can you tell us more about the mental method? Well, here again, I have another inspiration. I had an inspiration too, to create the mental method of presenting. And it's a book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Right. A best-selling book by a man named Timothy Galway in which Galway said, don't think about your arm and your ankle and your wrist and your shoulders. Think about the ball, get outside your body and think about the ball. Where is the ball and where do you want to send it? That makes the entire body work to the, to the ball. Not to the racket, not to the, how many fingers do you use in the grip? Uh, it's been years since I played tennis, but watch the ball. So the equivalent in presentations is what's the audience doing? How are they receiving you? And in the power presenter, we call that a two-step process. Read the reaction, read the reaction. I'm looking at you, Michael, to be sure that you're nodding and getting me. And there you are, nodding and smiling at me. You've gotten it. And you now break into a big toothy smile, telling me uh, that I have made my point to you. Yes, indeed. Uh, and um, But, but if, you, if I didn't get that handsome smile, <laughs> what I would do is adjust my content. I would yes. take it a step deeper. 
And of course, that takes you out of your body and out of, will I succeed? Yes, no, it's, 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 it's great. It's getting that, that real, those real-time reactions out of people. Um, one of the things you mentioned in that book is you say that uh, is obviously is one thing is to make sure that you get that eye connect and you, and you, you, you get that in, in registering of the, of the connection with the eyes, but also simply that you want to get head knots. You know, it's one thing actually just achieve your objective by, by delivering the presentation without something falling off the wall or whatever, but, but really the other objective is, is getting, is getting people to nod their heads. Most presentations are done by throwing in, throwing information at the audience and not seeing yeah. where it lands. Right. Go back to the tennis analogy. You watch the ball and see where it travels. So in the power presenter, the method, the mental method breaks down to two simple steps, read the reaction and then adjust the content. I see that Michael Rickwood understands what I'm saying, so I move on, I end my story. If Michael Rickwood does that, then I give him a little bit more. Yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. But one, one of the big problems here, yeah, I've worked on a lot of TEDx events and, and also similar style conferences. I mean, it, 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 since Ted turned up, I mean, everyone was doing TED style events. They put the, the round circle carpet on the floor and put the speaker in the middle and put them under lights and put the audience in the dark. You see, so I, every time I was working on one of these things, I said, no, 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 we've got to get some light on the audience. They need to be able to see who they're talking to. So that's something I was very, very adamant about. Uh, don't put the audience in the dark. It's not the theater. There's a balance there, Michael. There is a balance there. And, and for technical reasons, the production people do want the audience dark and the presenter with full lights. You can ask for a bit of spill light into the front rows and, and do that. But the production team doesn't doesn't like it when you tell them to put the lights in the house. No, I'm, I'm exaggerating. I'm exaggerating. But I, but I was always just for a little bit of light so the audience can, because they can see them, yeah, the front wall, yeah. And usually that was okay. But, but some, sometimes, uh, yeah, it's, I, I've, I've, I've sp spoken at events where I literally could not see anyone, you know. And uh, If I may, Michael, and you'll yeah. appreciate this having come from, from acting yourself. Yeah. A TED Talk is less a presentation than a performance. Less a presentation than a performance because there's the cameras, there's the audience, there's the production elements. How many people in business give TED Talks every day? How many people in business give multiple presentations to potential customers, investors, and partners a day? My books are for them, not for TEDx or TED. Yes, it, it, I tell you something. I, I worked on so many co corporate company events, though, which have tried to which have tried to emulate the, the TED thing because if they, they'll put the events on in the evening. And that's the thing, but I mean, you're right. I mean, there, there are, you say, you say, I think in, I think in, in presenting to win, there might be millions of presentations happening anytime around the world and very few of them have succeeded. And it's true. There are millions of them happening in offices and in daylight, you know, with small audiences for sure, for sure. And, and I think that, I think I read in, in power presenter that, you know, one of the things is, is, is getting people to move away from this sense of, of feeling like they should perform. And remembering that they are communicators and that this is business, you know, that you didn't turn up and tell them how to move or, you know, my experience of working, for example, in the luxury industry is that they're very focused on performance. They're very focused on perfection. But of course, you know, turning up and say, look, this is about, this is about connecting with people. This is about getting their reactions, making sure that they're following, that this is effective, you know, that the, the message is getting across. This is not a show. Exactly. Yeah. So it's only slightly different in TED Talks because there are people in the spill light at the front that you can see and you use them yeah. as sort of as an ombudsman for the rest of the audience. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, let's, let's have another one. Um, can you tell us about body language and the comfort zone paradox? The comfort zone paradox. It's another Roman column in itself, isn't it? <laughs> the comfort zone paradox is, it goes this way. What feels comfortable to the presenter when they're up in front of the room is to do this. 
or this, or this. Why? Because it's very much like an animal when the animal feels danger. When animals, four-legged animals, feel danger, they want to yeah. huddle in and protect yeah. the underbelly. That's the effect of adrenaline. Adrenaline is in four-legged animals and in two-legged animals. So the two-legged animal feels comfortable doing this, but it looks defensive or protective. What doesn't look defensive or protective is this. But when someone opens up like this, the body feels exposed and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So the comfort zone paradox is this. Feels comfortable, looks uncomfortable. <laughs> looks comfortable, feels uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. I, I, I think, I mean, you know, I'm going to just throw in that other question about, about gestures being too staged, particularly when it comes to corporate presentations. I, 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 my experience working with, with leaders is that they, they're inevitably actually being coached at some point and, and, and you get this sort of rather sort of strange neutral gestures happening, you know, I, I can't really see any, but you know, this where, where everything's sort of always here. Uh, when they're not gesturing, and, and it looks—it always looks for me very stilted. And I, what I always liked about about this this idea, when you talk about the mental method, obviously not with just the eyes, but also with the hands and with the reach out and and dropping the arms when you have a big pause, uh, and, and sort of it evacuates that that tension. Uh, I know I know that it's comfortable to to be here, but but you know with, with these sort of body wraps um michael you're throwing about four different <laughs> yeah i know i know i know it's terrible it's terrible but um and i'm delighted you read it you read the book so thoroughly you passed <laughs> you passed the test perfectly <laughs> a student uh, but let me just unpack that if i may sure sure before i started my own company i actually spent a couple of years as a hired hand for another company that taught presentation skills and part of their curriculum was to coach gestures. Every human being has a different way to gesture. And every human being has a different pattern. And that pattern is governed by the adrenaline instructions to the limbs. So I spent my days at that third party company, that other company as a hired hand, forcing people to do the gestures in my curriculum. At the end of the day, I won because I was more persuasive and I had the, the manual, but I felt exhausted and I felt also that I had cheated them. So from the day I opened the door to my own offices, I said, no gesture coaching, zero. Let it happen naturally. Be aware that this looks uncomfortable this looks comfortable and that you have to get over the paradox and open up that's all i tell people that's all i tell people that's awesome that's all but that's it though you know um yeah because people want that that's a thing and it's like you know what it, 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 what do i do with my hands but my yeah God, what do i do with my hands they really work all day but when i present i prefer to leave them back at my desk <laughs> Yes, it's, it's called it's called uh, thousands of years of evolution, right? We just we just we just use our hands, and that's it. So don't think about it. Right? Great. Um, Be natural is is the bottom line. Being yes. natural, what comes naturally. All right, great. So let, let's just finish on Q and A. Um, I've got a, a couple of more questions here uh, before we wrap up. So, in the line of fire has to be, in my opinion, the best, the best book ever written on how to handle tough, tough questions. So what inspires you? Politics, leadership? What, what inspires you to write that book? Mike Wallace. <laughs> Wallace? Mike Wallace at CBS. Ah, Mike Wallace. ah, yes, of course, yes. Mike inspired me by giving me tongue lashings as a, as a young associate producer if the questions weren't difficult enough. You'll appreciate this living in Paris. <clears throat> One of my early assignments uh, was in Paris. I worked with a French team from Cisco Systems. 
And during the day, one woman kept challenging me, my, my whole methodology. But I answered her politely and kept going. And she asked questions and challenged and challenged and challenged me. At the end of the day, she came up to me and she said, uh, I hope you don't think I was being rude, but that's what we French do. We are Cartesian. Mm. We ask questions. Actually, she's now in the new edition of Presenting to Win, the one that just came out. <laughs> uh, this young right. woman, right. Helene. But I tell you that because it's not just French people, but investors and customers want answers to questions. Mike Wallace wants answers to questions because he wanted them to be, um, to create a stir because conflict is drama. Good, tough questions make good, good TV. Why do business people ask tough questions? They ask tough questions because of that same young woman I met in Paris 30 years ago. Because they need answers. They want validation of your premise. And if you cannot validate your premise, they don't want to do business with you. They don't want to invest in you. They don't want to buy your product. They don't want to be your partner. They don't want to approve your proposal. So what inspired me was the understanding that Mike Wallace asked tough questions because that was good TV. But business people ask tough questions because, by the way, when I met that young woman I described to you, I hadn't written the book yet. Right. The book came hmm, 12 years later. <laughs> wow. But in those 12 years, I saw investors asking tough questions because they, you know, they'd say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're going up against the big leader in the field. What makes you think that you can compete against that 8,000-pound gorilla? And if that CEO or CMO or CFO cannot answer that question, if the Competitive strategy is not laid down very clearly because we did that in the first session on the story. <laughs> then the question is going to get splattered all the presenter is going to be splattered all over the wall because they will appear unprepared, unprofessional, no investment, no deal. Well, actually, I, I mean, one of the things that's been happening is that present presentations are getting shorter because of YouTube, because of, uh, you know, pitching and, and the. the Ted and everything, presentations are getting shorter. But that doesn't mean that we're having less time for them. It just means that the, the presentations get shorter, the Q&A is getting longer. Uh, and I, I think that, that, that there is a, a, a market, you know, for this approach, for, for your process, uh, more and more today than ever. And, and, and actually, you, you talk a lot about accountability with um, business leaders, you know, and, and it, for those of us following politics uh, around the world, we, we, we can ha watch Q&A with, with certain politicians, which, which can be very satisfactory and others are not as satisfactory at all. Simply, they just do not answer the question. But when it well, comes to- To that, to that point, Michael, yeah. uh, the first edition of, of In the Line of Fire, the book about Q&A, mm. uh, was in 2000, I would say 2008. And the current book that just came out last week <clears throat> is the third edition. Nothing has changed in the methodology between edition one, edition two, and edition three, except the case studies. Edition one and edition two were based on U.S. presidential election and the debates and the contests that went on. I took all of them out because most politicians today just fail to answer questions. That cannot be in business. The new version of of in the line of fire is almost exclusively, except for the classic Kennedy-Nixon debate, uh, which is just iconic at this point, is filled with examples of business. And guess what most of them are? Most of them are based on the quarterly earnings calls, which are available to anybody to listen to. Every company in the public market has to have a Earnings call during which they take questions from analysts. Listen to those questions from analysts. And if those questions are not answered satisfactorily by the CEO, the stock tanks. So the book is filled with examples of people who did it well in their earnings calls and people who did it poorly. And the ones who did it well 
serve as positive role models of the methodology we teach at Suasive and is pervasive, pervades the entire In the Line of Fire. Yes, yes, and, and uh, well, particularly also when you have uh, a crisis happening, you know. Um, Absolutely. For example, you know, I remember um, one CEO getting into real trouble after the Gulf of Mexico disaster in 2010. The, um, the, the former CEO of, of BP, you know, had, had big, big problems. Tony uh, Hayward. Yeah, Tony Hayward answering, answering questions. Uh, and he had to step down. He's in the book. Okay. It's in, in, okay. It's in, it's the uh, it's the lead off it's the lead off case study of how not to do it. it okay, because <laughs> I use the example as well a lot when, when, in my in my trainings. You know, the, but but it's it's well worth this. This will kind of tie back to one thing we talked yeah. about earlier, when Tony Hayward mm. was asked about the big oil spill that BP had occurred in the, yeah. in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, he said it was awful. People, he feels terrible for the people. He said. And I want my life back. Yeah. <laughs> that was his quote. I know that's what he's remembered for. <laughs> There's no whiffy in that. Your seven figure salary or eight figure salary. Yeah. Will be okay. <laughs> we'll get you through the difficult times. Well, I, I, I'm actually personally connected to that particular story because my great uncle uh, was his boss once. So my great uncle was head of exploration. His boss, yes, my, my great uncle Frank Rickwood was head of exploration at BP back in the seventies, and huh. Tony Hayward worked underneath him. Um, and so, but my uncle passed away, uh, I think, one year before that happened. I, I, I dread to think what he would have thought um, of, of of all of that. Um, well, but, yeah. you'll, you'll be interested to know that. Um, speaking of bosses, you'll be interested to know that after Tony How Hayward's big faux pas, mm. you have me speaking French now, <laughs> after Tony Hayward's big faux pas, uh, there was an enormous uh, uproar about it. And one quote that's in the book too, in the, in the line of fire, came from Obama, who said, yeah. unlike your uncle, he said, I wouldn't hire that man. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, uh, that's great. That's, that's great. All right. Um, awesome. Well, look, I, I, I've got, I'm keeping my eye on the time because I don't want to keep you for, for any longer than, uh, than, than schedule. So uh, I'll, I'll, I've got just two more questions for you. Um, it, so, yeah. So we, both, so we both studied acting in our past, and I love the term actor's actor. For example, Al Pacino is an actor's actor. So it's a frame of reference and inspiration for all actors everywhere. So with this in mind, uh, I've considered you, I consider you with your long experience in deep methodology, uh, methodology rather, as the coach's coach, with that same idea in mind. Now our industry in, today is ever expanding amid uh, digital disruption, the evolving needs to communicate efficiently, ethically, and memorably, and also within you know the online format as we're currently doing and any words of wisdom for the young coach looking to enter the industry what, what do they need to learn i'll leave the industry to the side i'll just if you want the best i can give you is is instructions to a young coach to be a more effective coach rather than penetrating the industry yes of course and the instructions of these <clears throat> beware of your curriculum your curriculum may not work because too rigid a curriculum may force a coach into being forceful, too forceful and not intuitive enough to evoke or coach someone to be effective. Because, you know, the word coach is from transportation. You need to move people from one place to another. So that's what a coach is, you move people. But all too often, and I've seen videos of coaches, because we occasionally, we're, we're expanding. And, and a couple of young coaches have sent us their videos. And I heard this phrase frequently. I want you to. I like what you did there. We don't care about the coaches' wants and likes. 
You hear the difference? Yes. What's wrong with that? Yeah. I want you to, as yeah. opposed to, try this. Yes. Take the word, just as reporters are told not to use the I in mm, reputable Yes. So it's really. Leave the word I out of their coaching because we don't care about the coach, yeah. what the coach likes. So it's humility you're talking about, humility and, and, and serving the audience, basically serving the context of the audience. A whiffy. A whiffy. whiffy. Great. All right, but look, let, let, let's just finish on, on one more question. Sorry, you wanted to finish that? Can I just give you one more? Yes, of course, of course, of course. The context being in Paris, my, one of my favorite dining experiences in the world. Yes. When waiters come up and say, I really like <laughs> on the menu. I really, yes. <laughs> well, I can, I can tell you once having a terrible uh, experience here eating in France. It wasn't in Paris, but um, one of my friend who was an actress, she asked for a, a steak to be well done. <laughs> And uh, the, the chef, the, the waiter said, well, I, I can't tell the chef to cook your steak like that. And, and she said, sorry. He said, no, no, I'm not. No, it's either rare or it's nothing. <laughs> he refused to tell the chef to overcook her steak. So there you go. <laughs> not much whiffy there. Um, to, okay, so let's just finish on one more question for you. So, so do you have any uh, final words for our audience, Jerry? Yes, it's a line from the great film Casablanca. It's still the same old story. Tell the story. If you don't get the story, don't bother with all the rest of it. All the glitzy PowerPoint, all the flapping of arms and gums and all the canned answers to all the questions will be meaningless if the presenter doesn't have a clear rouge feel. Jerry Weissman, uh, thank you very much for your time. And uh, thanks everyone who's tuned in to, to watch the video. Uh, please stick around for the next one. Jerry, thanks again. Thanks, Michael. If you enjoyed this episode of the Ideas on Stage podcast, there are many more you might like. So please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell us what you think. You can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now.